The Healing the City podcast is a ministry of the Village Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you enjoy the Healing the City podcast and wish to support it financially, you can go to villagersonline.com, click the We Give tab, and follow the instructions. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Healing City Podcast. My name is Eric Seepin. I'm pastor of the village, and across from me is Corey Gilchrist. How you doing, Corey? Hello, Pastor Eric. I'm I'm doing all right. Yeah, this was an attempt at two because I was trying to describe you as somebody who was amazing, extraordinary. I yes. think was the word you chose. Extraordinary. Yes, I was going to say that you work with your hands, you work with people, and you chase little kids, and you have a beautiful wife. Right. All those things are true. They're all true of you. Yeah. Um, when I'm not admiring my my beautiful wife, I'm usually fixing a toy or something broken in my home. Yeah. My children tend to greet me with with <laughs> repair jobs. <laughs> that's that's funny. Yes. Uh, there's uh, an assumed yeah thing there. Corey can fix it. He'll figure it out. Dad'll do it. Right. Yeah. Well, Corey, how long have we known each other? Oh, gosh. We met in 2007? 2000. Or 2006, around there. No, I think it was 2007. So somewhere between 13, 12 and 13 years. Yeah. Yeah, it's 2020, 14 years, I guess. If we met in 07, yeah. this would be our 14th year. Where you came to the village. Um, and what year in college were you when you... Started? I was... I was a, maybe a junior or a senior in college. Yeah, okay. I graduated in 08. And what was your degree in? I studied human physiology. Ah, so you know the body. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you, do you slowly forget about the body the longer it's uh, been? Since? Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Most of my uh, knowledge is all like the medical jargon that I hear in my work and... Uh, every like all the basic anatomy and physiology uh, I've mostly forgotten about. Right, right. So right now, and for really a long time, you how many years have you been a chaplain? How long is that? I have been a professional chaplain for seven years now. Okay, in the first what uh, five years, where where were they at? Yep. So I worked with the Crondelet Health Network. Um, so I when I first started, I worked over at. Uh, between St. Mary's, St. Joseph's, and Holy Cross Hospital. So they, I was a shared chaplain. Okay. And then I was at St. Mary's for like a year and a half full-time, and then the rest of the, my total five-year tenure I was at um, St. Joseph's. Cool. So let's rewind you back a little bit. Back, back, back. And just give me a, a, a short snippet about like how you came to Christ and how you met your wife, and then we can go from there. Yeah. So I was always a curious kid, and um, I, I grew up in, I would call it a secular family. My my parents um, came from very different backgrounds. My mother came from a Jewish background. My father came from a Catholic background. But neither of them were really well connected to their faiths and wanted to leave it pretty open-ended. But we were really close to my grandparents on my mother's side, so we were kind of um, like Jewish by by tradition. Um, we did all of the Jewish um, celebrations, but I was never bar mitzvahed. Okay. Um, and then when I was in high school, a ton of my friends were Christian, and I was really interested in that. And so I went to Bible studies and 
um, and checked it out, but it never really stuck. I always felt like there was there was a piece of that missing. Okay. And then when I was in college, I went exploring for that missing piece um, through clubs. Um, for you know, I joined a fraternity, and um, yeah, I mean, a, the, a fraternity is a good way to find out what doesn't work for you. <laughs> um, I can imagine. Yeah, and I, I got connected um, actually. Be, because I was in the fraternity, I got connected with a campus ministry, the Navigators, and um, you know did some uh, discipleship, I guess, through uh, some of the guys through the Navigators. And my now wife, Colleen, was a big part of that. As we were study buddies, we were both physio majors, and um, you know she invited me into that community. Okay, so she's the is she the one who invited you into the Navigators. Um, cause did you know her before the Navigators? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I met Colleen in, uh, 2005 and just because we were in the same lecture hall, um, a 500 person lecture hall and she was laughing while I was trying to learn and I told her, you know, to be quiet so I could learn. <laughs> yeah. In, in harsher words than that. Oh, and and yeah. the romance began. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, more or less, yeah. But but she and some other friends had invited me into that community, and I, you know, I met the the leaders of of that uh, of the navigators and and got more involved. And so, how did you end up at the village then? How did that transition happen? Yeah, so Colleen's roommate Lane Trinkley, now known as Lane Crawford, she uh, she invited me to come to the village to listen to her play in the band. Oh. And Colleen and I were pre-dating, pre-dating. at that time. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I came to the village and was, yeah, uh, <laughs> knocked over by the vulnerability of others. Um, yeah. And it was an invitation for my own vulnerability. Yeah. So can there's a famous story about you coming, if I remember right, to the first time. Did my sister-in-law say anything to you? Your sister-in-law did say something to me. What? Yeah. She said... Wait, was this the very first time This you was came? the very first okay, time. So very just get first everybody time. so they can figure... Okay, first time you get to church at the village, mm-hmm. my sister-in-law. Yeah, she said, if you ever do anything to hurt Colleen, I will have you murdered. <laughs> And I was like, oh, okay, like that's that's a very kind of maternal thing to say about, you know, somebody. Right. And then I found out later that she had those capabilities. <laughs> yes, she did. <laughs> so I was I was pretty scared. But I was also really encouraged at how protective people were over um uh, over Colleen particularly, but over the mm. the whole flock in general. Oh, cool. So you were at the village then for you got got married there. Yep. How long? Maybe a couple of years. A year later, two years. We later? were married in two thousand nine. Okay, so two years later, basically. Mm-hmm. And then you stayed at the village for what for another year? Yep, another year. Then we moved to Seattle, Washington. And you moved to Seattle, Washington to do what? Yeah. So um, Colleen and I both pursued master's degrees. I went to the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. Such a mouthful. It is. Yep. Formerly known as Mars Hill Graduate School. Also kind of a mouthful. Right. Um, So I got my master's in counseling psychology, and she went to UW, the University of Washington. She got her degree in occupational therapy. Okay. And so at the end of that uh, master's degree program, I think, you did an internship 
at, with chaplaincy? How did that work out? Like, because you weren't, when you left here to do counseling, chaplaincy was not the thing that was in the forefront. You weren't really even thinking about that, at least when you're talking to me. Nope, it wasn't in the forefront. I had, um, I had various experiences with hospital chaplains when I worked as a nurse's aide okay. uh, at the University Medical Center here in Tucson. And I knew about hospital chaplains, uh, but I didn't know much more. And I had an opportunity to do an internship um, uh, kind of midway through my uh, counseling program. So, yeah, I I took it. I went for it. And um, I ended up doing a fellowship or or, or a residency, I guess, um, in something called Clinical Pastoral Education, CPE. It's kind of like the formalized chaplain school. Okay. So for most professional chaplains that have some board certification, they do an internship and a residency, um, and it's usually like a like a two year two year program. So right. I did that. Okay, and so then you came back here, uh, and you were still trying to figure out: Am I do I want to follow the chaplaincy thing? Do I want to try to move in the more marriage family therapy direction? You, you eventually, obviously, decided to be a chaplain, right? What what was it that drew you to chaplaincy that like said, okay, this is a career, this is the way I want to go, this is what I want to do? Yeah, well, you know, when you work in a hospital in any um, in any sort of field, you know, it's people. It's all it's all people. Right. Whether you're you know changing linens or or cleaning toilets, or whether you're you know a primary provider, you know, physician or nurse, you know, pharmacist, whatever. Um, and as I worked as a nurse's aide, I realized that, you know, I had all these tasks to do. I needed to take people's blood pressure. I needed to walk them around the unit. I needed to draw blood and, you know, give people baths. But throughout all of that, it's, it's people, you know, I'd hear people's stories and I realized that I had gifting in, um, in relating to people and hearing their stories and helping them through, uh, you know, helping them process you know, some of their thoughts and and getting them, getting them out out of their head and and into their heart. And so yeah, so you were like, okay, this is a thing for me. I also had some negative experiences with sure. chaplains that were you know very forthright about you know certain faith you know beliefs and practices and how they ought to how people ought to be and and I thought there's there's a better way of of serving people in a ministry role. Yeah, especially when they're so vulnerable. You know, they're in the hospital or they're in a medical facility. People are at their most vulnerable, right? And they're hoping that somebody who knows the system and who is spiritually minded can be their advocate and can care for them and help them kind of calm down and right and you know in a really scary time have Mm -hmm. a little bit of peace. Yeah, that's that's a powerful ministry. So. You've been now been a chaplain, like we said, for seven years. Seven years. Seven years. Mm-hmm. What? What are the big? What's been the biggest surprise as a chaplain? Like you did not expect this kind of thing. Yeah. So I didn't expect chaplaincy to be so hard. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So what? What are what? What are the parts that you didn't like expect to be hard? Like what? What are some of the things that? Well. The the actual work isn't isn't that hard for me, right. and you know when it comes to like finding a a really tricky case, or having really complicated family dynamics, managing those things and knowing my role, 
and acting in my role, those things are not hard for me. What's hard for me is, well, there are a few things that are really hard for me. One is to be um, confronted with systemic problems, Mm. realizing that certain medical systems are not meant to serve people in an equitable way. Mm. Um, So I found that to be really, really hard. Um, The other thing that I found really hard was the the intersection of the the ministry and my own personal life my own feelings mm. um the you know when when you're serving your community they're your community right these are people that you see are around town these are your friends right. this is your family right. um so i i had a really hard time um creating a distinction between personal and professional wow and in, in helping professions, you have to be personable in order to be professional. They're really hard to separate. You can't just be one or the other. Right. Um, and so, you know, something that surprised me was that um, that really wore me out. Yeah, I, I can imagine not just wearing you out. It, it Well, I guess the thing that does wear you out is the fact that you have to walk that tightrope and you have to figure out how to do it and so you always have to be on in a sense, right? Like there's that constant onness, yeah. So you made a transition out of working in the hospital, um, and to now you work primarily in hospice, correct? That's right. Well, what's the? I mean, I we've talked about this before, and you you know you said it, people. There's the theme in both of them, um, but what's been the difference between working at a hospital and working with people who are dying? Well, the biggest difference for me that I noticed right away was the pace. In the hospital, the pace is very fast, and it, and the cases are very constant. You know, you've got your assigned unit. It may have 16 beds. You've got 16 patients and their families and their care team all, all moving hmm. at the same time. Right. So you may go back and forth. You may go one to the next. And you're there every day. So the stories are constantly changing. It's, just, it's a lot to manage. On top of that, you've got, you know, an emergency room that may call you urgently and you've got to drop everything you're doing and go witness a horrible trauma unfold before your eyes, like a horror scene or, or you know, the, just the, the worst possible thing you could imagine that you only think you know about because of the movies, but you don't know about until right. you really see it. Until you've seen it. And in the hospice world, the pace is a lot slower for the most part. Um, you know, my patients are all in their homes and they're scattered all across the city. So I have time to drive out and see them. You know, I have some mental space to prepare before I, I call them and talk to their family. Um, but, you know, I, I still witnessed death a lot in the hospital. And of course, in hospice, I witnessed a lot of death there right. as well. Um, the expectations are a lot different. You know, most people go to hospitals because they want to get better. They don't go there to die. Right. And most people in hospice have expectations that they're at the end of their life and they right. want the most comfortable, peaceful transition. Right. So as you were talking, I was thinking about um, two things. One, you're in a helping profession, but in a particular one that, well, in the hospital was this, I was thinking, man, this is emotional tag team. Like you just are like, boom, tag up into this room. And so 
but also this might have like you're following people who are then dying and so you get a little connected and then you have to let go and you get connected and so the two things i was thinking is one how does that affect your family like how do you protect them and then what are some of the things that you recommend people do to care for themselves who are well both in these kinds of professions but in general in life but in particular in helping professions what would you recommend well my family has been the you know the recipient of a lot of my negativity as far as how i've been affected by my job and i've i've realized that my family my wife especially is not She's not my therapist and she's not my work partner right. where like behind closed doors we could talk about patients or, you know, how irritate, irritated I became by, a you know, whatever, a patient's spouse or whatever. Right. Um, so I'm realizing that my wife is my wife and she is not the person that is meant to help me process through my experience at work. Right. Now that being said, she's still my partner. Right. And we have developed a way for us to dilute a little bit of what my experience is at work. Right. And I can give her that I, I like I can I can say to her, I've had a really hard day and it would really bless me if um, you had a little bit more sensitivity around me as the day comes to a close, rather than saying, "Oh my gosh, I have to tell you this story about you know this horrible death." And, you know, my two little kids are, uh, you know, they know, right. you know, they're smart, they right, they pick right. it up, and there's only so much encoding you can do to talk about the fact that you watched a person die today. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, they've they have been affected by it um, to the to the level that they know when I have seen horrible things right. and that I need a little bit more care. Hmm. Um, but I don't want my, my wife and kids to have the responsibility right. of taking care of me. Um, so my recommendation to people in the caring profession is that there needs to be some other way to care for yourself rather than having your family be your rescuer. Right. So I've incorporated, and it's still a work in progress, um, some methods of self-care. And it goes all the way from, like, when I change out of my work clothes, you know, I tend to wear, like, a button-up shirt and khakis, you know, kind of like, you know, standard business attire. Right. But I have a practice where when I'm done with work, I change out of my clothes and and I pray. And I say, Jesus, I'm casting my cares onto you as I am, like, casting my shirt into the laundry bin. And in the one minute it takes me to do that, to visualize my cares being put into a bin and putting on fresh clothes and and realizing that what I had taken on during the day, I have now taken off yeah. and I have put put aside. Um, so that's a daily, that's a daily practice. And I try to have, um, you know, healthy snacks throughout the day cause I get hangry very easily. Right. And I think like the, the work, the content of the work tends to exacerbate, be exacerbated by right. other more physical needs, hurt, uh, thirst, hunger, exercise. I try to take walks, you know, as best that I can. And then on a monthly care level, I try to get outside for a camping trip whether it's by myself or with a friend, just to be off the grid. Because my job now, I'm on all the time. Right. Uh, even sitting down here, 
I have felt my phone buzz a half a dozen times. And I think in the back of my mind, which one of my patients has just died? Right. And that's where my mind is. And if my mind is there on Saturdays, on Sundays, on holidays, on days off, there's no way I will survive in this field. Right. So... You know, when I'm when I'm off, I tell my coworkers I'm off the grid. I, I'm not responding to any texts. I'm not even going to look at my phone, and I have to actively resist the urge to read, you know, read yes. those texts or get those messages. Yeah, yeah. I, I I had to do something similar in that I had to take my watch off, and because it was connected to my phone, and I, it's easier for me to be detached from a phone. But if I had the watch right. on, it's just buzzing, and it, it, yeah, it just stressed me out. Yeah, yeah. A lot of my coworkers have have smart watches, and I know that they're they're great for some people. But I'm not a candidate me for neither. that. <laughs> I don't want one. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah. So that's I. And the other thing that's really interesting, and people are familiar with your uh, wife because she does a lot of cool things on the healing the city podcast right but she's also in a helping profession so you're a family of helping people and so you both have to kind of create these safe spaces and and that's i suspect has been a learning process it has been a learning process but you know we have a code you know there's an understanding in our family that the work that we do it's heavy right and that heaviness needs to go somewhere it can't just linger you know, at the at at the dinner table. Right. If my wife needs a walk, if she needs a break, if she needs a, you know, to set some time for her to, you know, do what she needs to do, we make it happen. We make it happen with no resentment. There's an agreement that we have. So, as you as you walk into people's rooms, and and I, I don't want to make that this transition, you know, so I guess uh, starkly. I mean, that that's really beautiful, Corey. Um, and the way that the two of you care for each other. But as you were talking, I was just thinking, oh, as, as a chaplain, as you walk into to the room with people, what is it that you're looking to do to help them? Like what's kind of the sort of the protocol that you walk through to, sure. to kind of help someone? I mean, a big part of my training is what I call spiritual assessment. You know, is a person in spiritual distress? Are they in spiritual despair? Are they spiritually alive or thriving? So I'm trying to gauge on a spectrum of where they where they are spiritually. So somebody may be very high need, right. uh, but they may also have really good support. Right. Somebody might have really low needs and have, have no support. What I'm looking for is for somebody that has very high needs and very low support. Okay. Because those are the folks that uh, over time have, in my opinion, a poorer quality of life. Yeah. And we've got nurses that assess a person's pain and their physical needs. We've got social workers that manage their, you know, help them with finances and other social concerns. Um, and it's my belief that you have to have uh, a spiritual and emotional assessment on someone in order to give them the best care. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking for, um, you know, certainly whether they're connected to a community um, or whether they have a supportive family as, as part of their support base. 
And then I'm also looking for what their thoughts are on God or a higher power um, and how it, uh, he or she or it relates to them in their current position. Hmm. And that, that was the, the question I was thinking about as you were talking is, I mean, you're a follower of Jesus and you're stepping into places where you meet followers of Jesus. And that probably makes your job a little easier because there's a commonality. What do you, how do you make that journey of caring for people who are like, I'm in a, I'm either dying or I'm in a a place of sickness and I really don't want to be evangelized. I I just want to be cared for, but I don't believe in your God. So how, how do you kind of bridge that gap? What is kind of, what do you, how do you think about that? Yeah. Well, that it is easier to serve fellow Christians because we have the same language right. and we have kind of a, a similar understanding. Um, but when one of my patients asks me, they say, well, what religion are you, Chaplain Corey? I don't answer them. I will not say, well, I'm a Christian or you know, I, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'll say, you know, it sounds like you, you really want to be understood and seen by me and you want us to have certain relatability. And my role is not to put my beliefs onto you. It's to help you in your beliefs live a good life and to obtain or retain the most quality, the best quality that you can have in the time that you have left. And that answer usually helps um, disarm people. Um, Now, at the same time, I, I meet uh, patients and their families that have very different or even opposing views to my own. And sometimes that's out there. Sometimes they know. They really want to know. Are you a, Do you follow Jesus? And, and I'll tell them, yeah, I do. I do follow Jesus. And we have some similarities in that we're both seeking. We both want something more than what this earthly life can give us. So I feel like my relatability or my efforts to be relatable is m- maybe even a more important, um, um, it's something that can benefit my patients more than just saying like, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian and I can pray for you. Right. But I am a Christian and I do pray. I do pray for all of my patients, Some, but some of them I don't pray for out loud. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And, and do you feel... Does that feel pretty comfortable to you, or do you, is there a tension in all of that for you? I mean, it's both. I mean, I'm I'm professionally comfortable with that, but personally, you know, I think for some people that they believe in no God. They are very firm on their beliefs or disbeliefs, and I, I do feel sad about that because I, for the majority of my life, was a non-believer, an unbeliever, and... Those were sad years of my life, years that, Hmm. you know, were lonely and empty. And I know, you know, in my own personal, unique way, that living a life acknowledging that God is my God, Jesus is my king, that is an abundant life. Hmm. 
And some people ask me about that. They'll say, Corey, what's your story? And I'm like, well, how much time do you have? You know, do you want to know about my struggles with alcohol or you want to hear about, you know, the the scenes from the fraternity days? Right. And they're like, oh, my gosh, I had no idea. You look like, you know, such a square. And I would never <laughs> have made those assumptions about you. And I'm like, yeah, Jesus is real for me. This is, you know, I'm not living a fluffy Christian life. Right. And it's those it's those moments where I'm like, yeah, this is this is the chaplain that was sent to you. Right. This is the chaplain that you get. Mm. And and those are those are beautiful. And and people aren't like, oh well, I was a non Christian and now I am a Christian. But now, but they say something like, wow, this is a lot for me to think about. And I feel like that is a job well done. Yeah. That's that. That sounds like uh, those moments sound very. Um, powerful and probably rewarding and also a little emotionally um, exhausting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do find myself often very tired, wishing I was just like the happy, clappy Christian that's like, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian and I'm here to pray for you. We'll rock through Psalm 23. We'll say in our Father, and I'm going to peace out of here. You know, 15 right. minutes, you know, easy charting, done. You've been listening to the Healing the City podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.